Well, it's very good to uh, be back with you uh, again preaching. And I was interested that your, uh, your pastor decided to choose uh, a new hymn for tonight. And I wondered if he had it in mind that I was coming to preach when it's called When Trials Come. Uh, so, um, anyway, that remains to be seen. I want to look tonight at a psalm, um, Psalm 73. And it's on page 586. I want to read that uh, with you um, before looking, uh, kind of scanning through the psalm uh, rather than taking any one part of it and seeing uh, what the psalm has to teach us as we look at it with New Testament eyes uh, through, through the prism of the cross. Psalm 73 on page 586. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said I, would, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was a senseless, uh, sorry, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. I just want to go through this psalm uh, briefly, I hope, uh, or you hope, uh, this evening. And uh, really the theme is about the danger for Christians, the danger for believers uh, to become unbelieving, is to stop believing, to allow our hearts to grow cold and to let our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ loosen 
and uh, kind of so that we drift away from him and uh, we're no longer close to him. This is uh, a psalm of an Old Testament believer and it's a great psalm and it's one of the great things about the psalms uh, that are unique in the Bible is that they're really personal and really passionate and they kind of like, it's like God kind of pulls back someone's heart so that you can see in and it's like uh, an x-ray into people's condition and into the way they think and the way they are spiritually. And so they're really great from that point of view. There's not many parts of the scripture like, that are like that. And uh, very useful for us, especially, I think, as we uh, look at them with our uh, New Testament kind of perspective uh, and the, a great amount of knowledge, great amount more knowledge that we have than uh, the psalmist's had when they were writing these uh, psalms inspired uh, by God. But I've entitled uh, the sermon, Drifting from Desire. And really the first section of the psalm is uh, where that is exposed most clearly, really from verse 2 to verse 16. The first verse is really just, I guess, a kind of summary of of the whole uh, psalm as as you look at the whole psalm. But from verse 2 to verse 16, you've got the psalmist expressing uh, how he was feeling Uh, in his life. Psalms written by a guy called Asaph. It's not a psalm of David. It's a psalm of Asaph. And uh, Asaph was uh, kind of David's musical director. He was like kind of Donald Cameron of his his day, I guess. Uh, And uh, he he was the guy that David would write a lot of the songs and uh, Asaph would put them to music. And uh, he would use them in the temple worship. He was the worship leader. He was a mature guy, a mature man of faith. Uh, he was uh, a strong spiritual man. And he actually wrote a number of the Psalms. He wrote Psalm 50 and then he wrote Psalm 73 to 83. These 10 Psalms uh, of which this is the first. And they're actually pretty depressing Psalms, most of them. Because uh, much of what he has written down has come uh, as he looks around him. And as he sees things change, he's slightly older. Uh, he's been around when David uh, has been in charge, has been king of Israel, and things were great for a while. And then he's seen all the struggles that David had, and now he's uh, the, uh, still the musical director when Solomon, David's son, is king. But things spiritually are really bad in the country, and he's bemoaning that, and he's bemoaning the difficulty and the lack of blessing and the lack of good things. And what's really interesting to it, he's not kind of moaning from a position of pride and kind of looking down on everyone else who's unspiritual, but he's really struggling. He's desperately struggling. This is a a grown-up, mature Christian who's been a Christian. uh, I'm using the term Christian loosely there. Uh, Old Testament believer, shall we say, because they weren't called Christians to Antioch. But uh, he was an Old Testament believer, strong faith. And yet with this strong faith, we see him really struggling. And we see him look, he's standing in one place and he's looking out at everyone who's not Christian, not believers at that time. And he's, he's absolutely uh, downcast by the prosperity of those who aren't believers. Um, and it's interesting, it's real grass being greener on the other side syndrome for him. He's looking at, he's in this place, I've been a believer under God's blessing. He's looking at those who are outside of God's blessing, who are not believers and who are, uh, as he says themselves, godless. And it just, he can't go over what a brilliant life they have and uh, how great it is. And it's, he's not only looking with kind of uh, uh, 
the green eyes of envy, but he's also exaggerating things, as you tend to do, don't you? You tend to do that when you're thinking you're in a worse position than someone else. Wow, they were a great time. They never have any problems. They never have any difficulties. And that's exactly what he's speaking about in verses uh, 2 through to 12. You know, look at the wicked. He says they're prosperous. They don't have any struggles. They're fit and healthy. They're not plagued by the human, uh, the usual problems. They're proud. They're callous. Uh, they scoff. They, they're uh, arrogant in their unbelief. They stick their two fingers up at God, and God doesn't do anything about it. And uh, they seem to possess heaven and earth, and life is really great for them. They're confident. They're carefree. Life is absolutely a breeze. Now, you know, even with the best will in the world, we can look at that and say, well, he's exaggerating there. I'm sure that wasn't the case. I'm sure it wasn't all easy peasy for them, lemon squeezy. It must have been difficult. They were all healthy. They were all strong. Uh, They were all living their lives as if uh, there was no problems whatsoever. And in comparison, he's looking at them and they've got a brilliant life. And it's so easy, and yet they don't believe in God. They don't have any of the hassles of believing in God. And he looks at himself, and he exaggerates his own problems as he looks at himself in verses 13 to 16. He's saying, it's been a waste of time for me to be a believer. I've, I've kept my hands pure in, in vain. It's just been a disaster. I've followed God all these years. It's kind of the, the elder brother syndrome the prodigal son. I've done these things for all these years as a believer, and there's absolutely no benefit for me. I'm full of struggles. Uh, I'm worse off. I seem to be punished. I'm oppressed. It's difficult for me. And I'm sure that uh, at one level or another, we can relate to that. Maybe not at this particular juncture in our Christian experience, but there must be times for us, there certainly have been times for me, when uh, Uh, The struggles and the difficulties and the weight of being a Christian has really got on top. And we say, what's the point of this? What's the value in being a Christian? I thought you were going, we're going to be under God's blessing. But I look at the people around who are not Christians and they don't have the guilt problems. They don't have the obedience problems. They don't have the uh, living in a certain way problems. They're happy and carefree. What is it that they've got? Or why is it that that's the case if they're unbelievers? And we can be envious of being unbelieving. And we can wish we were back in that place where we didn't believe anymore. Because it's, how many of you have experienced that? That you became Christians, and in the moment you became Christians, life got very difficult in a way that had never been before. And you say, what's that all about? How's that the case as a believer? Uh, What's the point of believing in God if that's the reality? What has Jesus done for me? And so we find this kind of really internal wrestling and struggling that Asaph is exposing for us. Praise God. And we can see that uh, in his life so much so that he goes on to say that his faith had or he doesn't go on to say, but he, he, he begins by saying his faith had almost wavered in verses uh, 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he looked at them enviously. He thought they were having a great life, and he almost lost his faith. He felt embittered. He was in spiritual darkness. 
and uh, his foundation, his spiritual foundation, was almost gone. He'd almost lost sight of who he was and what it was to be a believer. It's wonderful words because they're brutally honest. And uh, you may be able to associate with them this evening. You may be able to see and understand and know that for you as a Christian, it's not a bed of roses and it's not always easy. And you wonder when you come to church and everyone seems to be doing so well and nobody seems to have any issues and you have this festering problem of envy against those who aren't believers and the difficulty of living the Christian life. It's so hard to be a believer. If that is how you feel, and and, uh, I'm sure that we do to a greater or lesser extent at some point in our lives feel that way, what is the answer for us? Well, unfortunately, I don't have a very flash or new or exciting answer other than the one that's given here and the one that is true and the one that works, which is that we can only come back to God. That is the only alternative. That's the only place that we can come as believers, as Christians, because that's what Asaph did here. Uh, We have it very clearly in verse 17 where he says, Uh, He was oppressed and he was struggling till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. And he goes on to speak about what he learned in God's presence. That was absolutely key to uh, Asaph's faith being restored. He had to go back into God's presence. He, He went back into the sanctuary. Now, you know, when Jesus died on the cross and when he said it is finished, then there was a a really big, thick, uh, what was it, 80-foot curtain, maybe? That was double thickness uh, that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world, basically. And when Jesus died, that was ripped in two from top to bottom in the most miraculous way, which was the reminder to us that the, the, uh, we have free access into the presence of God through what Jesus has done. And so basically, uh, what Asaph is saying is he went to the sanctuary, when he went to the temple, he was going into God's presence to pray to God and to speak with God about his issues. Now, that's absolutely crucial and absolutely significant for us because what we are reminded of is that this complaint of uh, Asaph uh, is legitimized as he goes into God's presence with it. He was honest, he was perspicuous, he was vulnerable in God's presence, and he spoke to God about all his struggles. And that's a great thing for us to know and a great thing for us to mimic in our Christian lives, that when we're struggling and in difficulty and uh, wanting to give up, very often the last place we go is in God's presence. We stay away from God. We even stay away from his people. We cross the road to avoid his people because of the way we're feeling. But what God wants us to do is to go into his sanctuary, to go into his nearer presence, to use that access through Jesus Christ, the Holy of Holies, to wrestle with God, to speak with God, to complain to God, to argue with God, but to do it in his presence. And that can be a lonely work for us. No one else can do it for you. Your wife can't do it for you. Your husband, your children, your parents, your minister certainly can't. Something you must do, something I must do, that we take that decision in our spiritual struggles when things are difficult to get down uh, to business with the living God, eyeball to eyeball with Him. 
and allow him to uh, deal with us because that's what happened here with Asaph. And as he did so, as he opened his heart and as he was in God's presence, he understood more of God's truth. God revealed truth to him and helped him to see things from his perspective. Because isn't that what uh, the issue is? Is that um, Asaph had been looking at things from his own perspective and he'd kind of lost sight of God's perspective. And now he's been brought back into God's presence to see things from God's point of view. He understands several things. He understands about the ungodly in verses 18 to 20. Um, Basically, he is describing here those who reject God those who will come under God's judgments as those who are like a bad dream to God. Uh, you know what a bad dream's like? It's very real at the time. In fact, it'd be really scary. You can wake up in a cold sweat, but you wake up into a different reality and the bad dream dissipates. It goes away. It's not real. Whew. You can get on with your life. And uh, Asaph's using that illustration of uh, the reality of the wicked that one day uh, suddenly it will be as if they are no longer there Uh, we're being given a meta-narrative here a bigger picture that one day all those who reject God and who reject Christ and his love and his advances will come under God's judgment and will be excluded from God's home so he learns and reminds himself about the destiny the end of those who are seemingly at the moment having just a whale of a time. He also understands a bit more about himself as he goes into God's presence, about his heart. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. It's great that um, uh, we have here uh, revealed for us the very core of spiritual life, It's a heart relationship with a personal relationship with the living God. And Asaph begins to realize that's where the problem was. It wasn't with the punters on the outside who were having a great life without God. It wasn't that God was being miserably unfair to him in his life. But rather the problem was in his own heart. He was allowing his circumstances and the world around him to rule his faith. He was forgetting four very important things about God, that God was great, God was good, God was glorious, and God was gracious. He'd lost sight of all that. And he'd lost sight of that soul business that he needs to do with God. And he recognized that that was the core of his needs. He needed to stop blaming everyone else and get his own walk and his own heart in tune with the living God again. And again, that's so important and so challenging for ourselves that it's easy for us uh, to uh, kind of look outside of ourselves. And because there's lots usually of good, good reasons to look outside of ourselves as well. The church is rubbish. The minister's rubbish. The, the Bible's rubbish. Everyone else is doing great. Things are fine. But we usually recognize when God's dealing with us that the core reality is our hearts our own hearts and our own relationship with God. And he describes himself, interestingly here, as a brute beast, really, as an animal. And seeing an animal as being a soulless kind of uh, 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 being. And saying, you know, when we're not dealing with God, 
when we're not allowing him into our soul, when we not have that personal relationship, we're really uh, dishonoring God because we're made in his image and we're, we're really acting uh, as if we have no soul uh, like the animals themselves. So he learns about the ungodly, he learns about himself, and he also learns about God. God reveals himself uh, in very uh, gentle and fatherly and caring ways to him. In verse 23, he recognizes, yeah, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you take me into glory. Whom have I in the heaven but you? Very gentle, very gracious and loving words. He sees, uh, rather than a distant God who is miserable and harsh to him, as he comes into God's presence and comes into God's company and prayer, he rem remembers and recognizes and it is revealed to him this loving God who takes him in a parentally loving way by the hand. It's not a kind of harsh picture here. It's a gentle picture of a grown-up uh, guiding and looking after a wee, a wee child, uh, engulfing them with their big hand and taking them away from danger and guiding them to a good place leading them, as he says, leading him onto glory. And he begins to see the different destinies of those who are without God and those who trust in the living God. And he begins to see that God loves him and that God cares for him. And God, despite the circumstances, is actually guiding him. And he's strong. God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. He's the God who's the judge, who one day he will stand before. And uh, there's this great picture right in the middle of the Old Testament. And we can't look um, with any less uh, clarity, surely, than Asaph. We, we have much less excuse than Asaph because we look at Jesus, or God, through the prism of the cross and through the, the perspective of Jesus Christ and his outstanding love for us that we'll celebrate in the communion, that we've seen that and we know that. And he has done it for us and he has paid the price and his love is just simply outstanding. And uh, therefore, we have even, I guess, a lot less reasons in many ways, apart from our own hearts, uh, to drift from God. So his answer was in coming back to God. And I'm sorry, but I, I don't think there's any other answer for any of us in our lives when we're struggling, but to uh, grab the bull by the horn spiritually and go back into God's presence, find time to pray with him, find time alone, find time to uh, unpack your soul before him, to get through the layers that we often build up uh, to protect ourselves and uh, open uh, these things up before him. Speak to him. Young people, speak to God. Learn to speak to God regularly, uh, daily, and uh, share with him all the struggles that we have. And that leads us to the conclusion, which is the refreshing testimony uh, that comes from his answer of getting back into God's presence. Really, the last section, again, we've kind of uh, overlapped a little bit, but the last section is this, he senses, not only does he sense God as this loving caring God, but he senses the intimacy again. I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. There's a sense for him. Can you see the, the real, I'm sure, I'm, 
I'm no, I'm no Hebrew scholar at all, but I'm sure there's a, a real difference in the kind of Hebrew and the, the kind of language and the syntax and everything as you, from the beginning, which is quite harsh and sharp-edged, and the end, which is much more rounded and much warmer. Uh, as he senses God again, there's a closeness and an intimacy in that relationship. And it's something uh, that he knew he was, he was being guided by God again. Do you, have you ever been attracted to a Christian who is well able to be guided by God? There's a sense of intimacy and closeness, and you're attracted by that. That's what he's feeling again. It's uh, something I often pray for in my own life and in our congregational life, that it's not that we just know about God and that we know about in our heads and from the Bible and theologically, but we, we, we have his felt presence that he is intimate and close to us, not just in an academic way, but in a really spiritual, soul, heart way, so that uh, there's intimacy for us. And I really uh, crave that for us in this day and age when we're very cerebral sometimes in the church, and it's all about uh, intellectual assent and knowledge. But we need his felt presence as well. We need his closeness. We need to want and to see and to have that because it brings for him and it will bring for us an exclusive desire uh, for the living God. In verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you uh, and on earth has nothing, uh, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. That's an astonishing statement. It's an astonishing statement of desire from his heart. Someone whose heart has been changed. The wellspring of his life this great motive that must be at the heart of our faith because what we desire is what we run after. What we desire is what we spend time on. What we desire is what we prioritize. And if we don't desire Christ, then he'll be well down the list of our priorities because it's what we desire in our hearts that we live in our lives. The psalmist here had, had dug deep with God He'd really plowed his relationship with God. He'd gone into God's presence and he'd wrestled with these questions and come out with this renewed desire and this changed heart and this cleansed uh, longing for his God. He sees God as worthy. He knows that despite his feelings that God has accepted and uh, loves him. And that's a great thing. And one thing that we can't uh, manufacture, uh, it's not about uh, initiatives and expertise and strategies and how-to books and uh, uh, jumping through hoops and anything like that. It's, it's something we long for and ask God for and uh, seek that he will change our hearts. But it does require that we open our hearts to him in the privacy of our own relationship. And that intimacy and that renewed desire leads him to a shared, a willingness to share that experience. But as for me, he says in the last verse, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. When we have that spiritual vitality renewed in our lives, I think there's always a message with it. It's shared. It's something that we share with others, we recognize we're ambassadors for Christ and we have good news, really excellent news for our pals, excellent news for our colleagues, 
excellent good news for our neighbors, for our wives or our husbands or our children. And when Christ is in our hearts uh, in that vital and uh, refreshed way, um, it helps us to share that message. And rather than look enviously at those who are without Christ, we look tearfully at them and longingly for them to come to know the Christ that we have come to know and avoid the terrors of avoiding him that we have come to avoid so that we look at uh, our relationship with Christ uh, through the cross, through the personal commitment and love and uh, uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the greatest act of love that is transforming, has transformed and is transforming our lives. And uh, we therefore seek to share that uh, with other people. So uh, may that be the case in our own experience. Uh, I hope that you can uh, uh, kind of come alongside the psalmist here and see a lot of things that maybe uh, you can associate with as I can associate with and also find the very simple answers. Not easy, uh, but simple. That is, we must be coming back to God all the time. No one else can do it for us. If you take away and take away that tonight, no one else can do it for you. Drive into God's presence and seek him in your life as young people, as, as, as older Christians, because this is a mature believer and he needed to return to God and know that uh, refreshed desire and uh, refreshed intimacy with the living God. I pray that that is our experience. Uh, in our lives. We'll bow our heads and pray.